Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. I'm your host, Ahmed Yusuf, and joining me in studio today, we've got Amina Ziad. Hey. And Zach Ahmed. Hello. And uh, before we begin, we're going to be doing an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet and pay respects to the elders both past and present. This land was never ceded, and the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began two centuries ago uh, continued to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs, and pop culture with a little bit of a twist. And joining us in studio is contemporary and classical Indian dancer Raina Peterson. Hi. And we look at some of the so something of what we've already been talking about diversity in TV with Osman Faruqi who wrote about it in Fairfax's online publication The Vocal. And funnily enough, we'll be talking about his mother, Mehreen Faruqi, the first Muslim Australian MP who was pulled over and interrogated upon her recent visit to the United States as well as police brutality in Queensland and a feature on Invasion Day and the upcoming rallies with Bo Spiram from the Brisbane Blacks. What's going on, people? This is Akala, and right now you're listening to The Race Card. Big up. This week, we've got Raina Peterson joining us in studio. Raina is a contemporary and classical Indian dancer trained in Mohiniyattam. Mohiniyattam? Yep. Classical Indian dance of Kerala, India. She is one-third of anti-racist feminist cabaret act, the Ladies of Color Agency, and is part of Karma Dance Inc., a not-for-profit classical and contemporary Indian dance company. Her and her, dan- her dance partner... Oh, shit. What is... Um, we oh. were grammatically correct. But okay, um. that's okay. <laughs> her and dance partner Govind Pillai, Pillai's latest full-length work in plain Sanskrit premiered in Melbourne last year to sell out audiences and a five-star review from Arts Hub and they are currently working on a tour. Their website is www.karmadance.org. Raina, welcome to the race card. Thanks, great to be here. Well, so let's go right to the discussion. Um, As a classical and contemporary dancer, how and why is dance important to marginalized people and decolonization overall? Well, um, for the, in in the, (laughs) um, in the Indian diaspora, um, and I think this is, through to a lot of communities, um, a lot of parents send their kids to um, traditional dance classes as a way to um, get in touch with their culture and, I guess, um, like avoid assimilating into um, white Australian culture as well. So I think for a lot of um, families having a cultural, like getting their kids um, involved in some kind of cultural practice is quite important for that. And that was... Well, that was why I started doing dance when I was a kid and um, a lot of my um, colleagues as well. Um, and I think, like, it's, like the, the dance scene in Australia is, is really white and I think that um, I would really love to see more non-Western um, art forms um, present on Australian stages and in galleries, um, you know, across Australia. That's something that I want to see more of um and I think um art generally is a really great way for us to um say what needs to be said and tell our stories and there needs to be more um more stories by people of color out there um so yeah right uh, <laughs> oh sorry to butt in there I, I guess um my question is how do you kind of like navigate trying to do your cultural and traditional dance while being mindful, like obviously we're in a very West and white kind of like context here in Australia where a lot of the time you might be kind of, I don't know, like like that kind of dance might be kind of like seen as like, ooh, hip 
an edgy kind of thing for and not necessarily have your like something very important to you culturally and traditionally um be used in a very i guess i'm I'm not sure of the words but in in that sort of way that's that's a really interesting question like um to address the i guess the fetishization exoticization aspect i feel like um in australia there's not a huge amount of appreciation or knowledge of classical Indian dance, so it hasn't reached the level of exoticization that, say, Bollywood dancing has. Um, so that's cool, <laughs> I guess. Um, but I guess there are ways in which we navigate doing something traditional in a Western context. Like, I mean, even in India, um, classical Indian dance and other traditional dance forms have been very influenced by Western stage conventions. Um, and actually in um, our latest work in plain Sanskrit, um, what we sought to do in that um, production was to kind of strip away some of the trappings of the Western stage and some of the the glamour and the accessories which have accompanied classical Indian dance over the past um, century or so. Um, so that was an experimental piece where we attempted to deal with that. Um, yeah. How was the response? How did you find? Because sometimes you can you can you can do a show or or do a session or whatever it is, and feel like you've you're not really happy with, I guess, the bulk of the audience and and how they've responded to the art. Yeah, well, we were, this was um, we were really unsure about how the show would be received. Like we actually were concerned that no one would come <laughs> to it because we didn't think that there was that much interest in classical Indian dance or let alone contemporary Indian dance um, outside of the Indian um, communities. But um, we got like really amazing feedback and what was interesting was um, like we did a Q&A session and for me that was when it really kind of, I don't know, we got to kind of really appreciate what was happening in the audience because most of the people who attended the show stayed for the Q&A and were very interested in our work and asked very interesting and engaged questions. And it was really, really um, exciting for us to see that there is a level of um, engagement, like people were trying to engage with, um, with what we're trying to do and had a curiosity that wasn't about that wasn't about exoticization or objectification, but it was a kind of a genuine um, curiosity and respect for what we were doing. So um, I think, yeah, the Q&A was very insightful for us. And, um, yeah, but, yeah, like as a performing artist, I guess, like you never know how it's going to be received and that's something to, I don't know, that we continue have, continually have to in- engage with. But um, I think the newness of what we were doing um yeah I think it paid off and we're quite happy with how we were received and the feedback that we got just leading on to the next question so how and why must we own our bodies and movement so particularly with dance um what a significant what is the significance of um people practicing their own dances um I think like yeah I guess Going back to the the first question about how um, you know people in the diaspora connect with um, dance as a way of decolonization, I think that I don't know. Like when I was growing up, like we didn't really have any. Like I'm I'm Indian, and we had no kind of representations of Indians anywhere until The Simpsons came on, and there was a poo, and <laughs> that was right. That's our reference point for who we are. Great, thank you, The Simpsons. Um, you know, so prior to that, like, all we had were sort of rental videos of, of Bollywood films and so there were no representations of, of Indians in the media and so I think for me doing dance, classical Indian dance, was important because I can be like, oh, yeah, this is this is who I am, this is who my people are, this is my culture, this is an affirmation of, of who I am and I think, yeah, that's been a really important part of my identity and also as a Hindu, like, it's a very Hindu art form Mohiniyatam and so this is a way for me to connect with my religion in quite a public way um, in a society which is very Christian. Um, another way that um, like I've sort of connected with dance is that um, I think for me like you know I grew up in Australia and so I've kind of been through a lot of um, violence and abuse and you know a lot of that was racially motivated and targeted at this brown body and 
like I th- as people of color and particularly women of color I think in in particular like we've got you know enormous um you know ridiculous beauty expectations and we're surrounded by all these images of white women and so I grew up feeling like I was just this hideous monstrosity with this ugly brown body and so for me um being a dancer was a way to be like well this ugly brown body can do extraordinary beautiful things that are really rich and rare and um and a you know really deep and have a deep connection with that so um I think that for me like dancing was a way that I um healed from this kind of embodied trauma of um you know, that I accrued through the violence of white Australia, um, but also helped me to sort of connect with this this brown body and being Indian and being Hindu and, yeah, how I, um, how I negotiate my identity in this country. Dance has been extremely important for me. So I guess, um, so I guess you know, going with what you've been mentioning, is part of decolonizing movement to connect with the body would is that part of that or yeah I think so? so like I think that um yeah like well I don't know for, for me it's been quite important for me to connect with my body as a way to kind of heal from trauma and to heal with what this body means like being sort of um reviled and demonized for my appearance for my brown skin and what this body comes from like for me I feel like Connecting with my body has been, yeah, like a way for me to um, resist um, the violence of white society and um, to connect with my heritage and who I am. Yeah. Uh, but also, I'm just curious because, you know, growing up, like, example, like in Australia, we're always kind of like, oh, I don't really want to show these people like my food or my culture or my dance or anything kind of like, and I, and I have a similar kind of situation growing up. Was there ever a moment where you were, when, when was the moment of acceptance for you of of um, dance being something very important to you, of, I guess, every, like most aspects of your culture being um, a part of your identity? When was like that moment? Yeah, I, I grew up with a lot of shame about my culture and my identity. And I think like the moment when I really felt the shame quite acutely was um, when I was 12. And for some reason, the substitute teacher made us watch Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is like a racist pile of shit, which is like really hurtful to Hindu culture. And that was when I just shut off and was like, no, nah, I'm not... Um, I've had this, you know, deep shame and self-hatred about being a Hindu and and all that surrounded it. And um, I think, like, because when I grew up, like, the performances that I would do would be in my, like, in and for my Fiji Indian community um, for the longest time. And then um, when I started doing classical Indian dance, it was slightly more public. But I think when I started... Um, uh, working as an independent artist, I think that was when I was like, this is me, this is my self-expression and um, that was when I started to feel really comfortable and I guess it was sort of more public, like it wasn't just in the Indian communities, it was sort of um, opened up a little bit. So I think that was sort of, yeah, becoming an independent artist was when I was like, yeah, this is this is mine and you all better listen to me and what I have to say if that makes sense. Right. Um, And so coming back to one of your points where you mentioned that art is a really cool way to say what you want to say, and also art can be political. Um, So how is dance, I guess, in that realm? How can it be political? How would you see it? Well, I think at a... um you know, very basic level, I think, like, representation of people of colour in the arts is really important. Um, So at a very bare minimum, we just need to show up (laughs) and be there and and be on stage. And that's actually a lot of hard work because I feel like there's a lot of structural um, um, barriers to us accessing stages and galleries and and public spaces like that. Um, But I think dance is – can be like, it's it's kind of – 
I don't know, it's easy to see how spoken word can be political and how writing can be political because it's words. You know, it's very easy to kind of um, communicate a message. But I guess with dance, it's a bit harder because it's equal. It doesn't, sometimes it does, but it often doesn't have words. And so you're, you're just using your bodies to communicate. Um, so, sorry, just have a ponder. <laughs> I think I'm going mm. But I think also like the kinds of bodies that we see on stage can be like inherently political like I think um like a really good dance um production was um nothing to lose um which was on I don't know a year or two ago and it was like um all these dances of size um I uh, exploring that how um like what it's like to navigate um a society which pathologizes fatness and I thought that was like an in incredibly powerful um, political work involving dance with not that much words um, and using bodies. So I think there's that aspect of representation of bodies, which can be like, you know, really intensely political. Um, but yeah, I guess like there are other ways in which dance can be political as well. Like in In Plain Sanskrit, our show opens with a story of how um, like one uh, region in Kerala resisted um colonization um and I guess so that was like you know and that used words and so that was able to be quite political in that storytelling um but I guess in the concept of our show in sort of stripping away sort of the western paraphernalia that classical Indian dancers accrued and trying to kind of hark back to what classical Indian dance like might have been like prior to colonization and western influence um yeah, I guess conceptually dance can be very political. Um, you mentioned before um, about the representation of um, Indians particularly, and you talked about, um, you know, Apu became a reference point <laughs> for many people, like, um, particularly in the Western context. Um, so my question is, when you first saw, I guess, a different representation, let's say, you know, maybe another Indian dancer or whether it was another Indian artist, what was it like and... I mean, you could even share who it is with us <laughs> if you're comfortable. Yeah, I guess like my earliest sort of representation, like positive representations of Indians in in the media was, you know, from Bollywood films really and, you know, all these glamorous heroines and their amazing dance routines. So um, Bollywood is like a really, I don't know, important um, thing for me. Like I find it like quite nourishing to have that kind of representation um actually like our next um production will be a um classical indian burlesque um so it'll be kind of drawing on on bollywood a bit and it'll be like a queer burlesque show but um based on classical indian dance and through this work we're going to be um because me and my dance partner govin like we're both queer um so we're going to look at um, like sexuality and gender um, and we're examining them through the lens of classical Indian burlesque, which is a term we just made up. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, talking about like creating and, and redefining what it is to be an Indian dancer and, and, and adding, like you just said, Indian burlesque, do you feel um, we're kind of hesitant to... I guess redefine culture and redefine dance, and in in a sense, is what you're doing in a uh, in, in a sense revolutionary in in, in changing mm. our perceptions of because usually we think burlesque or Western rather yeah. than Indian. Yeah, I think like one of the things that we're kind of dealing with in in both these shows is that, um, well, we are like. I guess In Plain Sanskrit was very much a study on, on diaspora and we kind of realised through the course of working together that we are very much a product of um, the Indian diaspora in Australia. And so there are moments, and I feel like um, the work In Plain Sanskrit could not have happened if we were born and um, like if, if we'd kind of grown up and were trained in India because um, there's this sense of, in, in, in our work, there's a sense of nostalgia, but there's also this sense of, play and there's a very and there are moments where there's like moments of irreverence and humor which I feel like are sort of 
you know, very Australian, which, and that was kind of interesting for us to kind of notice that we had, <laughs> we had that in us. So I kind of feel like, yeah, it's kind of like a look at diaspora. And I think like, um, what we were doing it in plain Sanskrit was very much, was very challenging. And we had like members of the classical Indian music and dance community come to see our show and we were very nervous about how they would see it because it's quite contemporary. And I thought we were kind of worried they'd disapprove of us, um, you know, doing experimental classical Indian dance and what and how that would be perceived. But um, their response was very favourable, so we were very proud of that. But, um, yeah, with, with burlesque, I think, like, one of the things we're challenging in that is um, the um, – so I guess in the, the history of, of Mohini Atam is that um, in the – I think it was the um, – don't quote me on this, but I think it was the 17th century. Mohini Atum had its um, so-called um, golden age where it was performed in the palaces of Maharaja Swati Thirunal. And um, that was like, you know, our glory days. But then um, in the 19th century, it was often performed on the streets and um, the British-educated um, intelligentsia were like – started this smear campaign against Mohini Artem and being like, oh, it's performed by loose women, it's real slutty, it's really bad. And so Mohini Artem was his, his name was blackened and no one wanted their daughters to do it anymore. And then it experienced a revival in the, um, the 50s and it became slowly became more socially acceptable for women to um, do this dance form. And so what I guess I'm, I'd like to kind of explore in our burlesque thing is this idea of degeneration and, um, you know, just like mo- the Mohini Atom that was performed on the streets is just a, as legitimate an expression of the art form as the version performed in the palaces. It's very much a part of the same history. And I think um, in the classical Indian dance community, there's a sense of respectability which accompanies classical Indian dance, like it's you know, like, I'm a good Indian girl because I do classical Indian dance, um, you know, and I, there's this, it's it's seen as very cultured, very very middle to upper class, middle to upper caste. There's all this respectability of it. But actually, I'm not a good Indian girl. Like, I'm queer, I'm slutty, I have pain, I, I will fight for my friends, um, I've survived horrible things, I've got a lot of anger. So, like, I think... Um, in this burlesque show, it's like we're, we're trying to explore the complexity of our identities as, um, you know, members of the Indian diaspora, but also um, an examination of what it really, you know, as an artist, there are other aspects to us beyond the respectability. Put more beautiful people of colour on TV and connect viewers in ways which transcend race and unite us. That's the real Team Australia. You know, you look at the American TV, British TV. It, you know, has uh, you know, it's got shows with d- different nationalities, and 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 not just putting nationalities just for the point of difference, but creating work that caters for um, actors of different backgrounds. In my mind, I see a line, and over that line, I see green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white women with their arms stretched out to me over that line. But I can't seem to get there, no how. I can't seem to get over that line. That was Harriet Tubman in the 1800s. And let me tell you something. The only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. You cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there. Now we're going into our segment, The Week That Was, where we highlight the most important and notable stories from the past week. First up, we'll be talking some diversity in TV, or, well, the lack thereof. Um, This week, Osman um, Faruqi wrote an interesting article for The Vocal about Australia's lack of diversity on screen, and here are some of the things that I thought to highlight from that discussion um on diversity on screen he said delicious ethnic foods like kebabs pad thai dumplings regularly feature in the diets of our happy white characters but somehow the people that brought these things to Australia just don't exist 
And another thing he highlights is uh, an important statistic that I think is 30% of Australia's population is born abroad, while 46% have a parent born abroad. However, the thing that got me really was um, reading and, and, and learning about uh, Channel Nine's new TV series, Here Come the Habibs, um, is exclusively written by white writers. And uh, to talk about this and more, we have Osman on the line. Hey there. Hi, mate. How are you going? Good. Um, your piece touched on aspects of outrage about the Oscars, but criticised the lack of outrage to, to say the ABC who have only 8% of content makers that aren't from that aren't from a English speaking background. Why do you think there isn't the, um, the same kind of discuss, discussion about um, how white Australia's TVs are? That's a, that's a really good question. Look, I think on one level there are some obvious differences between the US and Australia. You know, for example, nearly one third of the US population is from a black background, and you know it's over twenty five percent I think that are from a Hispanic background. So when things in America like TV shows, movies, or awards like the Oscars don't reflect that multicultural reality, it's a bit more obvious and, and easy to critique. But you know, in Australia is still one of the most multicultural countries in the world, and even though we might not have you know as big ethnic minorities in one big group, like, you know, black Americans and Hispanic Americans, we do still have substantial minority communities, including the indigenous communities, Asian communities, African communities that are regularly not represented on Australian media, television and film. And I think it might be because the, the stuff that we see from the States is so big and resonates around the world, not just in America. We see that critics and writers in Australia will write about it as well, including the Oscars So White campaign. Um, I actually don't think there's an excuse to not cover the same sort of thing within Australia. I think it partly has to do with the fact that it's a bit more insular, the the scene and the culture here. And maybe people don't want to be seen as pariahs if they work within the industry of calling it out. Whereas in America, there's there's a bit more diversity and you know you can actually get props for, for speaking out about it. But I don't think that's a valid excuse. I think if you can write an article for a mainstream publication attacking the Oscars, you can write an article for a mainstream publication criticising the fact that you know ABC staff are so disproportionate compared to the rest of Australia and the fact that TV shows on commercial and public networks don't represent mainstream Australia as well. You talk about TV shows not representing mainstream Australia. Um, in, you, in your uh, piece, you talk about Here Come the Habibs, and it's exclusively written by white writers. Why, do you, why are we getting something, um, a, a, basically a show talking about a Lebanese Australian family moving to the city from the suburbs, um, now being written by white people? Yeah, I think the here come the Habibs and, and a lot of stuff associated with that encapsulates the problem we've got with Australian television. And um, I think there are a few different reasons. One of the things I touched in my article is that I don't think it's just, for example, say, you know, racism within senior management of production companies that is stopping, um, you know, non-white voices being heard. I think when you look at people from migrant communities settling in Australia, they often face substantial, substantial disadvantage. So they might not be as likely to get a university degree. They're less likely to get job outcomes compared to people from a white or English speaking background. And so when you compound those things together, you end up with a situation where getting a break in, in the media industry is not as easy if you're from a minority background or from a migrant background than if you're, you know, a white kid from the eastern suburbs, for example. So we probably have less writers from a Lebanese and Middle Eastern background in in the scene than we do white people writing for television and movies. So there's a, there's a barrier there. But again, I think what the problem is, and and again, why here come the Habibs encapsulates that that Channel Nine couldn't find a single you know, young or, or older Lebanese Australian to write this TV show for them. But they don't think it's a problem. They think it's okay to just get white writers to do that instead. Why aren't they funding programs that encourage diversity and, you know, encouraging cadetships and apprenticeships and the sorts of things that we would do to rectify these sorts of situations in other industries? So just think it would be extraordinary, for example, if there was a show that was explicitly about representing the voice of women settling into a new area, for example, just telling you know important stories about women and all the writers were men. That might have happened 10, 20 years ago, but if that happened today, people would rightly be outraged by it, by it and they would make sure that writing rooms weren't dominated by men. And I think it's time that we started to adopt the same sort of tactics uh, around minority voices and around migrant voices in Australian television. Why do you think that's not happening currently? So, so that's, I think, the crux of the issue. It's one of the things I wanted to explore by writing this piece. I actually don't really know. I'm, I'm, I haven't been able to nail down exactly why people feel more comfortable critiquing 
what's happening in the States and, and even in the UK and Europe than what's happening in Australia. It might just be because, you know, picking up on what I touched on before, that there are maybe two or three production companies in this country that produce the vast majority of the content that we see on our television stations. And people don't want to be seen as speaking out against that because they fear they might be blacklisted. But whether that's accurate or not, I'm not sure whether that's something that would happen, but it might be a fear that stops people speaking out. But I think one of the things that we don't have in Australia that, that for example, does exist in the US and the a couple of UK networks like Channel 4 are experimenting with as well, is specifically employing people whose job it is, is to foster cultures of diversity, as well as employing tactics like quotas. So I think all networks in the in the United States are required to cast specific minority actors for a certain number of television shows. That's not something that exists anywhere in Australia. And I don't think that would fix the problem automatically. Like you might see neighbours, for example, saying, let's just have more scenes at a service station and cast an Indian guy running the service station that way. That can end up, you know, with tokenistic minority characters. But considering things like quotas and considering things like diversity offices and diversity programs is not something I've really seen talked about in Australia. And I think if it was, we'd start to rectify some of the issues. Hi, Osman. Amina here. Um, my question and observation, I guess, is two-pronged. Um, one being the target audience. So as you mentioned, the writers are not diverse, and I'm assuming they're also not writing for a diverse audience. They're probably writing my suspicion is to a white audience and the other side of it um, is the consumption of these caricatures by the peoples they are writing about if that makes sense yeah. and on the one hand the consumption of these caricatures by you know white people writing for white people a white audience as well as um, what are the consequences when people do adopt these consumptions of themselves yeah, that, look, that's a really good point. And I think when you look at the trailers for shows like Here Come the Habibs, it does seem like that's aimed at more of a, a white audience than it is of you know, Lebanese Australians and their experience in Australia. There are very few shows that you can think of that have been written for people from migrant backgrounds and minority communities that, you know, and the shows are for them. I think, and interestingly, this is another example where production companies and networks in the US have realized that actually minorities exist and they watch TV. And if you make shows about them, made by them, they will watch it and it'll make you money. And we're seeing a big increase of that sort of stuff happening in America with shows like Scandal and Empire that are, have prominent you know, black characters. And uh, you know, Empire, in fact, is just all about the black community. And that's working for them. It's paying dividends. But in Australia, networks tend to ignore that. I think Benjamin Law's recent show, The Family Law, the reaction to that has been really interesting because not only have you seen it rate really well, and I think it, the first episode got over a million views when it was released on Facebook, which was a groundbreaking thing for Australian TV, but quite a few like prominent and not so prominent Asian Australians have spoken up publicly and written articles and blog posts and just talked about how it's so refreshing to see accurate portrayals of them because not so accurate ones and in fact negative ones tend to have pretty devastating negative impacts on you as you're growing up. You know, if you, you grow up, watch Australian TV and you don't see yourself represented, you, you feel left out. Or if you see yourself represented in a tokenistic and racist way, well, that tends to breed racist attitudes to you when you're at school. And that's certainly been my experience and no doubt the experience you guys and probably some of the listeners have had as well. Uh, Osman, um, you, you just touched on the, the harmful nature these cartridges can, can have. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How harmful do you think this, the, uh, a show like Here Come the Habibs can have to, you know, an already, um, I guess, um, I, the, the Lebanese community in Australia has already been vilified in, in many ways of being criminal and, and what have you, and also the added Islamophobia that's that's trenched upon that how harmful do you think this show might be i think look one one the show hasn't come out yet so it's hard to say exactly what the impact of it will be and one of the i guess the interesting things about here come the bibs is that the idea 
was um, created by a Turkish Australian Tahir Bilgik, who was involved in Pizza and the movie Fat Pizza, which actually was written predominantly and acted predominantly by Australians from migrant backgrounds. Um, but the fact that, you know, even though he came up with the show's idea, the fact that it seems to have been taken over by a white writing production team has pulled it perhaps in a slightly different direction. Um, but, you know, if the show is anything like the trailer represents where the Lebanese characters essentially are playing outdated stereotypes of what white Australians think, you know, Lebanese migrants like, which is not very bright, not used to having money, not used to working and coming up with crazy schemes, I think that is going to have a problem. And, and I think, you know, the cynic in me says one of the reasons why it was greenlit is exactly because of the current situation we've got in Australia and unfortunately around much of the world where there is increasing racial tension, increasing religious tension, and a show that just pits that whole clash of cultures divide is something that they think might pay off for them when they put it on TV. And I think that's a really sad way of exploiting, you know, fears and concerns within the community. And if we want to overcome those things through television and through art, and I think that's an important way to do it, we're going to do it by having Lebanese Australians and other migrants telling their own stories and not having white people, you know, force caricatures down the throats of white Australians. Thanks for coming on the show, Osman. Really appreciate it. And anyone who listening, go check out uh, Osman's article. It's on The Vocal. I think it's thevocal.com.au. Vocal.com.au. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Check it out and you'll find his uh, his article. And um, where can they find you on Twitter? I'm just uh, OZ underscore F. Thanks for coming on the show again, Osman. Have a good day. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. <laughs> I'm banning all rap this year at the awards. Yeah, don't get me wrong, I love hip hop, obviously. But tonight, it's all about soul. Okay, hold on a second. I got another call, wait a minute. No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and they name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I got on my overalls. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to send an Uber for you right now. Yeah, come on, be outside. NSW Greens MP Mehreen Farooqi, Australia's first Muslim MP, was racially profiled at LAX upon her recent visit to the United States, where she was detained and interrogated with immigration officials. The news follows after her tweet dated January 15, 2016, circulated. The tweet reads, After finger- fingerprinting, etc., we were asked how we got Aussie passports and marched off to the interview room for grilling. Welcome to America. Amid Faruqi's assertions, U.S. custom and border protection deny any practice of racial profiling, citing the interrogation was a routine screening measure, and such a screening is not uncommon. A part of me agrees with this sentiment, that it is routine screening, except some would call this procedure flying while Muslim. For listeners who are unaware, flying while Muslim is an expression that refers to the problems Muslim passengers face in a post-9-11 world dating back to 2001. Zach Ahmed, what are your thoughts? It, it, um, like, when I saw this, I wasn't surprised this happened. This is like textbook everything. You, you have Muslim friends who are visibly Muslim, have Muslim names. Um, you know they've gone through this. You know, and, they, mm. and they've gone through this multiple times. It's just a... Wait, what the hell was that? Oh, I'll say that again. Um, you know they've gone through that. You know what I mean? It's... it's Unfortunately, it's a reality that so many Muslims, um, and even people that aren't Muslim, people that just look Muslim, mm. um, yeah. have to go through. And it's just, can you just imagine, right? Um, say, and like a person, a politician, um, at any other level, imagine them being screened like this. Can you imagine? Say, let's say for example, 
I don't know, someone like Tony Abbott walked off and and he just got he just got screamed because well, he was happened white. Because he was oh, white. That yeah, was, definitely. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. That's not. That's a... the thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he was white. And and um, imagine just just imagine that just on the basis that she looked Muslim. Or even like her name just sounded her, Muslim. Yeah, exactly. And like I don't know, like people like I, I remember there was a few months ago this woman wasn't allowed to have a can of Coke. Right. Yeah, because apparently know? she could use it as a weapon. Yeah, I remember yeah. that story. And and it was just crazy how she was, uh, how she was treated. And the good thing that I feel like of that story and this one as well that social media was a was a was an was an agent of good and change in that sense that it allowed for this to be highlighted. And that's one of the good things for social media, especially like I guess in the past twenty four months, we've seen aspects of racism and aspects of racial profiling and etc. Lead but to there's, a, there's a difference between highlighting the problem and then actually inciting change. Oh, no, definitely. You know, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, because the... there's plenty of, like, you know, stories. Of, I mean, one of the stories that I heard, uh, I think, about a year ago was a story of this sick man who was in a turban um, and he committed the crime of traveling during the month of Ramadan. And um, he was flying on a plane. And the day that he was flying, he hadn't actually, like, he was rushing. He was going interstate in the US or something to visit his family and he hadn't eaten anything or something in the morning and he was pulled aside by you know the the officers for like a random security check or something like that random right yeah random um and you know they asked him really weird questions like you know have you eaten anything today you know like they were trying to gauge whether or not he was a muslim and when he said that no i haven't actually had any food today they thought oh yeah muslim definitely and they, I think they held him in custody for, I think it was almost 12 hours or something like that. They held him in custody. Just, just, just hold on for a moment. Imagine, right? Um, you're being held because you haven't eaten the day. <laughs> just, 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 you know, like. And a, that's not all. When he got home, he found that his stuff had been moved. So people, I mean, allegedly what he's saying is that there's a good chance that these people had actually gone to his house and searched through his house. Wow. Because he committed the crime of wearing a turban, of looking Muslim. And, and, and not eating, imagine. And not eating. Imagine. Mm. The goal. How dare he not eat something and not, like, what? Just... Wow, so, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a huge difference between, you know, highlighting these stories because, you know, everyone knows these stories happen. Everyone, everyone knows that this happens, but, uh, mm. you know, what's being done about it, I guess. Mm. Or what can we do about right. it? And I think one of the reasons why... Um, what happened to Mahreen Farooqi made the news was because it's Mahreen Farooqi who is the first Australian Muslim MP. And that's why we're hearing about it. But, you know, as as previously mentioned, yeah, it's definitely something that is very common. It's a common um, experience for a lot of Muslim passengers or people who are racialized as Muslim passengers, um, including Sikhs, people who wear turbans um, and the like. Um, but I guess, it, you know, when you're on the receiving end of racial profiling, I think there is a sense of humiliation alongside, obviously, the stereotyping. Um, what do we think about the humiliation and stereotyping? Well, but the humiliation is there for, for a reason. They want The reason you're being racially profiled is to make you feel humiliated. It's, it's to make you feel like less than human, in a sense, basically. It's to, to show you and cast you out as someone who doesn't deserve the regular treatment. You deserve special treatment, and that special treatment is usually to harass you, and and things like this, like it's it's just like I don't know words can't describe. But imagine being pulled out just because of the way you look, and mm-hmm. and and having that just a reminder of the only reason we're pulling you up is because you look different, and having that to be reminding to you every time you're and not even let's say for example the next time uh, Mahreen uh, travels abroad, she's pulled over. She's going to be thinking, are they pulling me over because I'm Muslim? Every single time. It's not because they're just doing a random routine right. check. And that becomes this, uh, this, this um, justified paranoia you have because you're afraid. Because once it's already happened, once you've been cast aside because you're Muslim, every time you're cast aside, you're worried that it's because of that. And that's, I guess, what, what happens with things like, this is what happens when racism exists. You mm-hmm. feel this sense of paranoia. And it's totally justified paranoia. But just because, like, say, for example, you get punched in the face. If someone's the same person or the similar people that are going, just, just, just like, putting their hand near your face, you're not thinking they're just going to say, hey, how are you going? You're thinking they're going to punch you again. And what are you going to do? You're, f- you're going to flinch. 
yeah. and you're going to feel worried and you're going to be and they're going to see that as a suspicion and a sense of suspicion and that's and I guess that's just the vicious circle that we have right so it feeds into the you know mistrust of the system I guess I'm Luke from Indigenous X and you're listening to The Race Card this week we're looking at police brutality in the Australian police force following an incident regarding Queensland police and members of the Indigenous community. Last Sunday, a video emerged on social media depicting several Queensland police officers using excessive force on a teenage boy and his mother inside their own home. The underage boy is being cuffed by several officers. The mother is seen trying to get to her son when she's repeatedly shoved away and yelled at by police officers. Her son is eventually taken away and the mother is then aggressively shouted at by police officers. One of the officers then asks his colleague whether or not he's got cuffs and then to arrest her. The police were called to the scene by a neighbour in response to a alleged domestic disturbance complaint. Police media issued a statement saying allegedly whilst this matter was being investigated, the police were assaulted by people in the house leading to four people being detained outside. Meanwhile, a two-year-old child was left alone in the house. This has naturally created a huge backlash with many people commenting on social media that this is exactly how hashtag deaths in custody begin. Queensland police said that the actions of the officers involved would be subject to an internal review and that the footage would also be reviewed further. Now, there are a couple things that I'd like to touch on here. Uh, The first point is coverage. And the reason I bring up this is because Queensland Police social media, Facebook in particular, is actually the most popular in the world. Um, Fun fact, I guess. They've got, I think, 700,000 followers on Facebook. Um, They're great at making jokes and memes and all that kind of, you know, happy fun time stuff. But since this event has taken place or this incident has taken place, there's not been a single mention in regards to the incident since it actually happened. And that's kind of weird and upsetting because it's almost like they're trying to sweep it under the rug and too often you find that police institutions don't speak up about their faults. Um, The second point that I'd like to touch on is the issue of internal reviews. So ethnic and and indigenous communities of Australia have spoken about... Breathe. I got this. The second point I'd like to touch on is the issue of internal reviews. So, ethnic and indigenous communities of Australia have spoken up about this countless of times, countless number of times. When we file a complaint to the police about the police, the matter is then taken up and investigated by the police. So, y- y'all see the problem here? Y'all see it? <laughs> so, it's just another example of why we need an investigative body separate to the police force to which we can address our complaints. The federal and state police forces need to be held accountable by someone other than themselves. What do y'all think? Like, um, I guess this is just an example of this doesn't only happen in America. This happens right here. Indigenous people die every day because of police brutality. Um, Black deaths in custody happens, and 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 I feel like we don't we don't actually understand the the significance and the, the I guess, the, the sheer number of it because we're always... And this is what happens when, when things are so kind of like... America is, is such a cultural... Um, uh, what's the word? Cultural... Power. Not, not only cultural power, like... What's the word? Culture imperialist. So everything that happens there, any kind of atrocity is amplified as mm-hmm. and, and we don't necessarily see it with the same light here. Like, And we were talking about this regarding like Australian television. This goes to Australian policing... Um, and how they treat... It's almost like we try to other them. We try to make it, oh, that's an American problem. That's not... That doesn't happen here. But only because we don't see it. Like, we don't report about it. Like, Mm -hmm. this sort of stuff is swept under the rug constantly. At least in the US, this sort of stuff is... I mean, it's reported on, but, you know, it could be reported on better, naturally. But we still hear about this. And because it's an American issue, it's, you know, blown up out of... You know, it's really sort of globalised... But the same thing happens here. And while we're being really vocal about issues in the U.S., like, Mm -hmm. oh, the Oscars are so white, oh, police brutality in New York or in the U.S. in general is so crazy, the same thing is happening here. Like, Um, the Logies are white as hell. Police brutality is Um, real as hell here. And I think um, while we were talking about, you know, the cultural imperialism of America, I feel like for people's outcry, there is a sense of glamour in being outraged at American violence. But... 
it's not because they're maybe inherently anti-violence or whatever. Um, it's more like the glamour of it, if that makes sense. Because as you said, if they if they were truly anti-state um, violence, then they would also be anti-deaths in custody. You know what I mean? We would probably have um, on-the-ground action or at least some kind of campaign going on. Definitely. Or awareness even. Like, forget campaign. Like, some kind of awareness that this happens. Well, like, like, the thing, I feel like the awareness, the information is there, but... It's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. The, it's a need for it. Do people really yeah, want to seek it out? Exactly. Like, we hear we hear statistics like Indigenous people are the most imprisoned people in the world right, in Australia. Yeah. Like Indigenous Australians are the most imprisoned but people in the world more so per than capita. The United States. Even. Yeah, more so in the United States. Way more. Um, and like, uh, there are so many statistics I could reel off. Like, um, and and like when you think about it, like the th- uh, Indigenous people make up three percent of the population, mm, yeah. but I think um, they make at least a, a huge chunk of both men and women make huge chunks of the prison right. population. Like, and I think the fact that they're such a small, you know, minority in the, you know, wider Australian community is part of the problem. Like, not not a problem, but like in the US, for example, you have the black community, which is so vocal about these issues because mm. they're just so high right. in number. Like you, you're kind of forced to listen to them. Right. And you're kind of forced to hear what they have to say. But because the indigenous community of Australia is so few we kind of collectively just sort of, you know, push it aside. We kind of ignore it, right. pretend it doesn't actually exist and, and that it's not a right. problem. And I think as ethnic migrant people of colour, right, I feel like we don't stand in solidarity as not much. Not no. um, Partially because we like to play good migrant. And a lot of that means that we have to go with the system. And it just happens that the system is actually predicated and it still is... Um, violent towards indigenous people. And so there's this whole bunch of, I don't know if you can say lateral violence or just a bunch of like anti-indigenous sentiment within ethnic migrant communities as well. I remember I was talking just casually with a friend of mine and on the one hand, she was complaining about, you know, people would profile her because she's, you know, a brown South Asian woman. But then at the same conversation, she was talking about indigenous people being drunk all the time. And I was like, wait, hold on. There's a problem with that. Do you not see the problem? You know, it's, you know, here's the thing. You cannot say you're anti-racist if you are not in with, if you're not, you know, if you not, if you do not truly believe indigenous justice, then you cannot be truly anti-racist. That's, that's my personal um, take on things. There's no I way. I think that's the standard. Yeah, yeah. That, that should be <laughs> the standard. Sure everyone is like not yeah. in agreement yeah. right now. I mean. But yeah, that makes yeah. perfect sense. <laughs> This is Amir Rahman, and you're listening to The Race Card. I'll feature this week's on the upcoming Invasion Day. Yes, Invasion Day. And to help us talk about and, and discuss this is Indi- Indigenous activist, a member of the Brisbane Blacks, Bo Spiram. Thanks for joining us, Bo, on the show. Oh, good, brother. You know, thanks for giving me the opportunity to share the space with you. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Um, and, you know, there are a number of rallies happening on the 26th across the country. Tell us about the, uh, the some of the stuff you're organising, um, and and how hard it, how hard is it making something happen, um, like a nationwide rally? How hard is it organising everything like that? Um, well, yeah, you know, um, just being help organising, uh, all preparing with others up here in Brisbane uh, for the Brisbane stage of. Um, um, the Invasion Day March. Yesterday we had some banner making. Uh, I know the, some of the mob in Melbourne had some banner making yesterday. Um, uh, like, 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 yeah, like it is quite a bit hard to tr- to um, try and um, organise on a national scale. Um, but when you've been doing it for quite a while and you have the contacts um, of people who are, you know, as committed as yourself um, and as passionate, you know, it sort of makes the job a bit more easier. Um, you know, but with some saying up there, you know, it's, it is a, it is a hard task to sort of you know comprehend, you know, um, trying to build on, you know, when we're talking about you know something, you know, as you know, as damaging, you know, as the 26th of January, you know, um, you know, when you talk about five generations, six generations of, you know, um, uh, uh transgenerational trauma, you know, um, it hits, you know, our mob in different ways. Um, but, you know, just like, um, 
Al Mabai, you know, we're very resilient, you know, we're very strong, we're very loving and caring, you know, so we always get up the next day, you know, with a smile on our face and a, and a hop in our step, you know, and, um, you know, and that's how it's sort of been, you know, with um, the lead up, you know, to um, Invasion Day, you know, um, you know, and, 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 you know, like it's off the back of, you know, uh, the rallies from the force closures, uh, movement with uh, the SLS Black Australia, you know, and then you look before that there, you know, G20 in, in 2014, you know, with the rallies that we had up here for eight days straight, um, you know, then you, know, you look at uh, the 40th anniversary of Canberra, you know, so for the, for the last, you know, three to four years, you know, it's been building, the momentum has, you know, and, and um, you know, I, I really think um, you know, Tuesday is going to be a really, really big day. You know, it, it, it's in a very, it, it, it is a very important day, you know, because I think if we can, you know, grasp, uh, if, we, if we can gra uh, gravitate around the momentum, you know, and the energy that's built on the 26th from our mob, I think it'll shape, you know, uh, the rest of the year in terms of how politically active know, our mob are on such a large scale, you know, um, you know, and I think, you know, uh, we're doing it, you know, um, and I think, you know, uh, it's going to be a big day. Why do you think there's so much momentum now, specifically, you know, so you talking about the past couple of years, what do you think's changed? Um, I think, I think, you know, there's been, you know, there's um, a breath of fresh air within the movement. Um, with a lot of us young fellows, you know, jumping up and, you know, standing alongside our old elders, you know, or, you know, like a lot of them don't like to be called elders, but, you know, like, you know, our, our um, you know, the older generation has been, you know, a part of the movement for the last 40 years, 30 years, you know, 50 years, you know, um, you know being alongside them and, you know, getting guidance from them. And, you know, um, I think, you know, that's where a lot of the momentum does come from. Um, you know, and also, like I was saying, you know, there's a bit of a, you know, there's, you know, there's um, a bit of fresh air, you know, or, you know, some new kids on the block, as they, you know, as, as, uh, as it sounds like, um, you know, getting involved, you know, and, and, and it's sort of like, you know, taking a new approach, you know, um, to how we look at things and, you know, how, how we, you know, um, sort of, sort of uh, reignite the movement, you know, because, um, it's a, you know without you know without a doubt you know it's not a lie that the movement become, movement has become a bit stagnated and you know like we need to just invigorate it you know ignite the fire in different ways you know um, because it has been a while you know since um, we've had you know uh, um, you know since we've had you know national days of action like um, with the fourth closures last year you know almost twenty thousand people around the country. You know, over those, you know, four different, five different national days of action, actually, you know, got out all up, you know, around 20,000 to, you know, 30,000 Aboriginal people, you know, got out, you know, and marched and, you know, and showed pride and dignity on those on those days. You know, and, like, it's a combination of old and young. I think that's where the momentum's coming from, you know, and also, like I was saying, you the last few years have been, you know, very... You know, uh, very big, and also, you know, it just shows, you know, um, uh, the uh, the attitude, you know, of mainstream Australia and you know the Australian government in terms of how they you know, see us, you know, with uh, the forced closures and with the you know police brutality. Just recently, you know, up here in Brisbane on the north side, where the cops ran in on that army, you know, and was pretty much punched her in the neck. You know, um, and this is like the mentality that. You know, we have to deal with day to day, you know, so, you know, sooner or later, you know, something's going to, you know, crack and pop off and, you know, hopefully, you know, that, within saying that, you know, that's the movement growing, you know, the momentum getting back to, you know, what it was when, you know, almost 45,000 Aboriginal people from around the country descended on Sydney in 88. You know, we're looking, you know, at doing stuff like that, you know, in the near future. Why do you think there's this huge apprehension when non-Indigenous people talk about Australia Day and its history? Why do you think there's this... 
I don't know what this this kind of fear and apprehension of and this this defensiveness. I think you know because you know we're you know we're the only ones that can tell you know the average Aussie, the average Ocker, you know that they could you know that they don't have the right to claim this land. You know when we actually say, oh, you know, like it's like saying. You know, it's, 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 you know it's, it's like when I meet another Aboriginal person and I say, oh, where are you from, bro? Where are you from, sis? You know, and she says, oh, you know, no, I'm Waka Waka, you know, I'm Radri, or I'm Gumoi. You know, then, you know, I ask, you know, like, then you ask a white side, oh, you know, I'm from Fitzroy. No, oh, you know, I'm from uh, Brisbane. Oh, I'm from, you know, uh, uh, Sydney, you know? And, um, you know, like, it's it, like, like it gets down to the... Um, like it scraps up the surface of who they really aren't, you know, when Aboriginal people say who they really aren't, you know. And, you know, I think that's, you know, why they come out in force on, on such a day like this here, you know, because, you know, we can actually justify that they don't have a connection, you know, to this land, you know, uh, historically, uh, you know, um, spiritually, you know, culturally, you know, um, there is you know, no connection. Now, one thing I would say, you know, we've got turtles, you know, that are on this continent that live up to, to that live to be 150 years old. You know, um, the Federation of Australia, you know, only gets around 150 years old. You know, like it, like, you know, if we've got turtles, you know, that live that long, you know, it mustn't be, you know, much of a connection. And you know, um, you know, yeah, you know, like uh, they can't justify their illegal occupation, you know, to us as Aboriginal people. You know, they know that. You know, and that's why they come out on force, you know, on droves with their, you know, fake profiles. You know, like, I've had to delete, you know, so many off the Brisbane Invasion Day, you know, um, uh, event page, you know, um, and it's right, right on this racist shit. You know, but, you know, that comes with the territory, you know, and, um, you know, that's, you know, that, that, that's all what it really is, actually, you know, is, is, is just keyboard, you know, warrior shit, you know, and, you know, when it actually comes out to the crunch, you know, like, you know, like we never see these fellas. They all from what all from we do, you know, they, like uh, they don't say much. You know, but yeah, yeah, that, like, oh, I think that's why, you know, like, like, like we can, you know, disuse an Aussie, you know, um, and you know, and like we're the only ones that can do that. You know, um, yeah. So like, you know, like, like that's why I think, you know, like they're more offensive and they're more, you know, um, upright. You know, around this state, they come out in droves. You know, like, you know, like, like you hold up high school friends and you thought, you know, your mates in high school, you know, end up, you know, showing their real colours and shit. It's, it's pretty funny. You know, when we talk about um, Australia Day or really Invasion Day and when people celebrate it, uh, at least in my perspective, it's... It's it's no different to to someone celebrating the Holocaust and the lives lost in that in that horrible genocide. Why don't why don't we see that um, here in Australia? Why don't we see Invasion Day the same way we see something like the Holocaust? Definitely, definitely. You know, um, um, and honestly, my opinion is because um, they're white. You know, that's the reason why they don't see you know our struggle. Um, you know, like our struggle isn't, you know, um, you know, uh, remembered like theirs, you know, because, it, you know, that's what white privilege gets. You know, white privilege gets a national day. You know, white privilege gets, you know, um, Holocaust museums, you know, on other countries, you know, where genocide continues to be perpetrated, you know, and for, and, and, and for a, a long extent of time, you know. Um, but, yeah, exactly the same. Like a brother of mine from Sydney, um, my cousin there, Provost, he's he done a video blog about, you know, his thoughts on Australia. He's a rapper. I should watch it. It's, it's, um, it's mad. You might have to put a bit of caption in the video because he, he lets loose. But, you know, he says, oh, you know, like, would you be, you know, in, in World War II if Japan invaded? You know, how would you feel about, you know, celebrating National Japan Day if, you know, Japan invaded? You know, like, you know, he, he brought that in, you know, that, you know like, he brought that comparison, you know, um, to it as well, you know, and I think, um, you know, like, yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, you know, like, it's, it's, it's that amnesia, you know, that, um, 
you know, what Australia, you know, seems to have around the state, you know, and also around Anzac Day, you know, um, every day, basically, you know, whenever they're talking, you know, about, um, you know, remembering, you know, what they've brought to this country, you know. Uh, thanks, Bo. That that was awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, and um, just before you do go, um, where can listeners find more information about what you're doing in Brisbane? Um, and and I'm and I'm pretty sure you're a part of um, the Brisbane Blacks. And talk to us a bit about the Brisbane Blacks. Oh, um, uh, the, the 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 Brisbane Aboriginal Southern Embassy. Um, uh, yeah, so you like if, if you want to find information about Invasion Day in Brisbane, please you know jump on Facing uh, and type in the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy. Um, you know, also on the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance uh, page as well. Like, like I'm a part of War. You know, like we have a few chapters around the country. Um, you know, and um, you know, like we're, like we're always updating that. And also, you know, like we have. The um, Indigenous X Twitter, you know, until the 28th or the 29th of this month, you know, so um, just keep posting, you know, on Indigenous X, uh, on the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy, and also, um, and also, um, uh, Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. Now, um, and also, you know, Black Folk Revolution, you know, like they're always sharing bad stuff, you know, um, pretty thought provoking stuff. Um, you know, also follow the hashtags, um, Invasion Day 2016, and um, if you're if you're looking for any good Aboriginal hip hop, you know follow the hashtag um, Invasion Day playlist that we've been putting together. You know that we're encouraging lots of people to play at the rallies and just on the day of the 26th of January. You know just to, you know sort of give a kick in the guts to um, the Hot 100 by the other rival uh, radio station. Thanks, Bo. You've been you've been amazing. Thanks for coming on the show and. Uh, everyone, uh, listen to Bo, follow and, and find all the information on Facebook and, and come down to the rally and support um, a very important cause. Thanks uh, thanks again, Bo, for coming on the show. All good, all good. Thanks, mate. You have a good one. Bye-bye. See you, bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.